coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. First of all, you have to be prepared, right? So, you know, if it's treating a, a rock star at 3 a.m. after a gig, that's what you have to do. If you have to travel, you know, around the world with someone and be up at certain times to do whatever, that's what you need to do seven days a week. That was our guest for today, Dave Hancock. You can hear more from Dave very soon. But first, a quick thank you to Apollo V2 for supporting this episode. You can check them out at ApolloV2.com. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. And head over to Instagram at Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. We've got a prize giveaway courtesy of Avonmore Protein Milk with one for all vouchers, a case of Avonmore Protein Milk Gold in there as well. So big thanks again to Avonmore Protein Milk for providing them great prizes. Thanks to Apollo V2 for supporting this episode. And thanks to you for pressing play on the show and continuing to support us. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Dave Hancock, Elite Performance Director and Physiotherapist and CEO of Apollo. With nearly 30 years experience having worked in three professional sports between the UK and the USA, Dave shares his story of long hours, work ethic, passion, and helping high performers like Bono, John Terry, and Kevin Durant get healthy again. Dave unpacks his learnings and reflections from working in different cultural and managerial environments, from Leeds United, Chelsea, the FA, New York Knicks, Washington Nationals, amongst other top-level sporting organizations. We talk about Dave's company, Apollo V2, a cutting-edge software framework and sports technology system that brings elite management support and data analytics to an individual. It's truly fascinating stuff. Dave understands how teams, players, and high performers in general operate. He's lived in this space for his career. There is so much to learn from this reflection on a journey to the top. Dave, appreciate you taking this call. It's early on the east coast of the States. How are you doing, sir? Very well, thanks. Uh, pleasure to be here. Really looking forward to digging into, I suppose, your story because it's very much the epitome of high performance. Your roles and your success for a long, sustained period of time is is deeply intriguing. Where did it all start for you, Dave? So I, I played rugby quite a high level. Played like for county and the north of England, and I was sort of destined to go on and play for the country or at least try. And I got injured and. Um, I went to the physio at the club and I was like, oh, this is quite cool. You know, it's sport. I love sport and I played rugby since I was seven and then I ran for the, I was a, not a bad runner. I ran cross country for, again, the south of England and the county. So I was like, this is really what I want to do. And then um, I went to Headley Court, which was a, the RAF Rehabilitation Centre down in Surrey, close to where I grew up, where the physio actually of, of my local club worked. And uh, I was just blown away by the whole rehabilitation of these soldiers, you know, being blown up and being shot and, and all the things that go on with uh, military. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. And then uh, I was like, that's it. I was so set. I went and obviously got my grades. And then I went to Penderfields, which was a, a really a rehabilitation college affiliated with Leeds Medical School. And a lot of physios in football would actually come from Penderfield. So Mark Leather, who is the Liverpool physio, Dave Galley, who is Sheffield Wednesday and Liverpool physio, they'd all stemmed from this college. 
And it was actually run by a sergeant major who had obviously been through all those sort of rehabilitations. So there's a big bias on rehab. And I ended up choosing that college over the different places that I wanted to go. And that's that's where it all sort of started. And you've had such a fantastic career since then. I mean, we spoke off air briefly about your experience and where you've where you've given value to people in so many different diverse settings. When you became the high performance director, the first English one for Nick's back in 2008, what was it like taking on a role like that? The first thing is that I, my view is I didn't really, I obviously spent so long in football. I didn't really, you know, I played basketball at high school, but I didn't really understand it. But I understand injury. And I, over the years, I think physios get good eyes at watching people move, watching the, the way that the sport is entailed, the intensities of what they do. And my whole view was that I need to collect some data to actually look at the objectivity. And at that time, there wasn't any data. I remember I basically was like the first. I remember the, the, the old CEO of Catapult from Australia came over to see me. And he, he said, who are you? We've been trying to break the NBA for you know a year or so. And uh, he said, no one actually gets it. And I was like, well, I've come from soccer. And I was fortunate enough to, to work with Nick Broad at Chelsea and at Blackburn Rovers, who was an incredible guy um, that really influenced a lot of the things that I did in rehabilitation world. And the same with Dave Fever, who came and I worked with at Blackburn. So I'd had a, some good background and good people that I worked with to understand GPS and accelerometries and gyroscopes. And then we had Prozone, which was based in Leeds. So I started using data quite early in some of the things that we did. So my view is that I need to collect information on the on this game and then try and use that data to influence the coaches and then try and look at how we can improve the efficiency and the communication about what we're doing. So really quantify what the game was involved, what was involved in the actual game. And Dave, it's nearly a testament to you that you, you took that challenge and you went across the Atlantic. Oftentimes when we're speaking to people, be that in sport physio business an opportunity comes when they could really step up to the plate but sometimes anxiety uncertainty asking questions creeps in what what went through your head what was the mindset like when you said look i'm going to step away from football for a while and and try to make inroads in the nba the highest level of a different game my view is in life if you don't take risks, then you're never really going to get out of your comfort zone. You're never going to experience the other things that could occur and it could fail. And a lot of people don't like risks, but, you know, I look at myself now as an entrepreneur. And if you talk to any entrepreneur who runs businesses and builds businesses, then you have to take some element of risk. And my view was that, you know, this is an actual challenge. I love challenges, whether it's treating someone who has had multiple injuries or been to see many different physios or doctors and not really getting back, or whether it's a different sport. And, you know, my view is you rise to the challenge. And, and that's how I saw it. I was very positive about everything I did. And I said to, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, I was like, look, you know, we've got nothing to lose. Let's just go and try it. It doesn't work out. We moved back to the, to the UK and... I think 13 years later, I'm still here. And I, thought, and I look back and I think that's definitely the best thing I've ever done in my life. And to dig deeper into that, 
What people find sometimes when they're going into another role, of course, reputation, experience, clinical expertise, depth of knowledge, exposure, experience in the field will always set them up quite well, although you went into a slightly different role. What about the kind of transferable skill set, the, the soft skills, those interpersonal skills? Which ones for you really do make the difference and, and kind of what can we learn from that to take to new positions or role opportunities? So I think... One of my strengths is the ability to adapt to any level of personal skill. So if I'm talking to a high-flying lawyer or CEO or I'm talking to a, you know, a sports scientist or I'm talking to a coach or I'm talking to a youth athlete, I think what makes good medical or anyone really in, in the fields of what they do is that they can manoeuvre between how they educate, how they communicate, how they deal with those different athletes and egos, if you like, within sport. And I think that's something that you, I think it's an art. I don't think it's something you can read. I think it's something you is within you. I think it's something that obviously experience brings you. But my view is that don't try and be someone you're not. If you show a caring side of what you do, which is what physios really are about, and that athlete realizes that you've got his or her best interests, it's a win-win. Because for me, you might have all the skills under the sun. You might have all the degrees and the PhDs and the MSCs and the knowledge. But if you can't communicate with that athlete or that person and that person doesn't trust you, it doesn't matter what you've got academically. It's very much about that relationship with those different people. And obviously, you would have better relationships with some than others. But generally speaking, I think if you're positive, I think if you basically show that you're willing to help someone, that goes a long, long way to actually helping them to recover. I think there's a lot of psychology in sport. I think there's a lot of psychology in treating and rehabilitating people. And if they have that trust and that confidence in you, and also you have the ability to realize that actually something's not working for you, I'm going to go and ask someone else. And in a medical world, especially at the top level of sport, that's a very, very difficult thing to do because then your ego is dented. And I think with experiences, I look back at scenarios like that that happened with me and then I, when there were scenarios that I actually did go and ask someone else to get involved with what I was doing, it was actually more beneficial than, than what I'd previously done. So it's all those life experiences that I think uh, can help. Definitely. Yeah. Looking back over the last few years and your experiences, again, we spoke off air briefly, but you mentioned adaptable communication. You've had to work with some of the biggest high pressure situations over the last few years. I'm just wondering if you would share a few of the interesting projects that you have done over the last years and how you had to incorporate them skills and communication skills and what challenges they presented with. Yeah, there's lots of those. (laughs) So I remember that there was one story that I had with, uh, when I was at Leeds United and Peter Reid came on board and we were struggling we needed to stay in the premiership there was all the financial worries going on at Leeds at the time so we'd sort of risen from this top three premiership team to having to survive in the Premier League and O'Leary had been fired Terry Venables had been fired um, you know there's interim coaches with Eddie Gray and Peter Reid come on board and Peter Reid had a, a history of firing physios when he was at Sunderland so I was sort of on eggshells a little bit and I was still sort of early 30s when he came on board. And I remember that we we had a gaming away at Anfield and uh, we needed Lucas Radibi, who was our centre-half, who was like an old war horse, 
had a really bad ankle injury. And I decided that, you know, we would work around the clock, put in that effort to try and get Lucas fit because Lucas was the sort of guy that would come back and have treatment at nine o'clock at night. Um, and I was the sort of person that would be like, whatever we can do, we're going to do to give you the best opportunity. And if that meant I went home, had some dinner, and then came back and treated you every night at nine, then that's what we're going to do for the team and for Lucas. So that's the commitment, right? And not everyone is willing to do that type of stuff. And I think, you know, when you go, when I look through my businesses and what I'm doing in my life, that first of all, you have to be prepared, right? So, you know, if it's treating a, a rock star at 3 a.m. after a gig, that's what you have to do. If you have to travel, you know, around the world with someone and be up at certain times to do whatever, that's what you need to do seven days a week. There's no uh, shortcuts to sort of get to the top. And then same with running a business, taking calls from clients at 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. Most people aren't. They, they say, yeah, I'll do it, and then they're actually not prepared to do it. So that's number one. The story with Lucas was that, we did this fitness test and he wasn't basically couldn't move I and mean, he was playing against Michael Owen. And I basically turned around and said to Peter Reed, I said, there's no chance. I mean, I was beating him one-on-ones myself. Said, there's no <laughs> way that he's going to be able to deal with Michael Owen and the speed of Michael Owen at Anfield. I said, impossible. And Peter Reed said to me, let me talk to Lucas. And he pulled him over to the side and literally spoke to him for about five minutes. And then he walked past and he went, he's playing. And I went, boss, you said, that's suicidal. Anyway, I got on the bus. I was super mad. I was like, how dare he overrule my medical opinion and this, that, and the other. And I was just like, Lucas, you're crazy. When I, uh, I want to play, I want to play. You know, Lucas was a, an incredible human being that just wanted to love playing and helping people and basically satisfying the manager. He'd do anything for Leeds United. So I take this ankle and I'm sat on the bench thinking, oh, he's, he's probably going to last five minutes. And he was world-class. He had Michael Owen in his pocket throughout the whole game. And I think we drew the game. And I just remember, I I mean, I remember afterwards taking the strapping off and the ankle blew up like a balloon. But I remember that there was only so much as a medical person I could do. And I'd given all the evidence to the player and all the evidence to the manager. And I remember like how angry and mad I was that I'd been sort of overruled. But that was a really good lesson for me very early to say, you know, look, you can only do so much. And if someone overrules you or makes a different decision or goes in a different way, there's no point in losing sleep over it. So, you know, some good lessons that you learn from sport. Um, Another great one was Mourinho. We had a situation with Lampard uh, where he had an injury and this was just shortly before Jose got fired the first time around at Chelsea. And... uh, I was trying everything I possibly can to get Lampard fit. And in fact, I ended up making mistakes where I was trying to push too hard too soon. And again, another lesson to learn to not get brought up in the the whole situation of the politics within teams. And he said to me one day, he said, uh, why haven't we got the best machines at Chelsea? And we had every single machine you could possibly imagine. And I said to him, the best machines, and I pointed to my hands and my brain, and I said, these are the best machines. And he could tell he was in a bit of a bad mood. And then he turned around and said to me, he says, and I'd literally just been headhunted from Leeds to go to Chelsea, and they paid money to get me out of contract. They paid a quarter of a million pounds to Leeds United for my services, club to club. So I had a transfer fee, which was ridiculous. Unfortunately, I never saw any of it, but (laughs) Ken Ken Bates was very happy. 
And I was like, this is my dream job. You know, I've moved from Wolves to Blackburn to Leeds. Now I'm at the top. We're winning premierships, FA Cups. I'm with the best of the best, and which is where everyone, you know, would like to be. And there's nothing better than winning and being involved with a winning organisation. And he said to me, I don't think you're as good as the guy that was here before. <laughs> I looked at him and I went, why do you think that? And the guy who'd been there before was a, great, a really good physio, but he'd come from track and field. And the boys used to laugh that he couldn't kick a football. So you're working in a sport which you actually, you know, you have to take players out and rehabilitate players with the ball. And I'd like, I spent, you know, 14, 15 years prior, since 93, 94, till 2006, 2005, working in football. And I was like, I was stunned. I was like, I don't, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. So that night, I didn't sleep. I was tossing and turning. I said to my wife, I was like, this is crazy. I'm like, I, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. So I really looked within, you know, and I was questioning everything I was doing and, you know, maybe he doesn't like me and all this sort of that type of stuff. And I was, I just was like, I can't have this on my conscience because if this is on my conscience and I really hugely respected Jose, that I might as well not be at the club. And I'm the sort of personality just say, fuck it, you know. So I was just like, you know what, I can't deal with this. I'm very much, let's just be open, put all our cards on the table and find out what the problem is. And if there is a problem, then maybe I do need to, you know, I'm not what I think I am. So the next day I said to him, can I, can I speak to you after training? He said, yeah, sure. So I went into his office and he put his feet up on the desk and I looked at him and I said, you know what you told me yesterday? I said, yeah, I said, I think you're wrong. And I think you're wrong because of I laid out my qualifications, I laid out my experience, and then I looked him straight in the eye and I said, you know what, I'm going to prove you wrong. And all of a sudden, this big smile came on his face. And he said, sit down. He picked up the, the phone, called his PA, and she brought coffee in. And I looked at him, and I was like, you're just testing me. You're just testing me to see if I've got the balls to actually challenge you and step up to what you've thrown to me rather than just sink down underneath. And it was probably the best thing I ever did with Jose. And to this day, I still text and talk to Jose. So again, you know, there's times in life where you make decisions and they're the wrong decisions. But I, I much prefer to, to make that decision rather than look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done that. And those two scenarios, you know, that you learn about challenging and not to challenge. And I, I think things like that have sort of put me in good stead for what I actually do now. And David, love to build that out. That story of the South African footballer is fascinating. What about for... For people maybe starting their career or, or maybe even switching careers and, and they could be skilled, right? Talented and have a really good work ethic. We'll, we'll get, you know, come back at nine o'clock, know it's the brain in the hands, are really good at building rapport and relationship with different nationalities, different leaders, different managers, different departments. How do you strike the balance? If you're, if you're moving into another organization, you've got that experience, you know, you're competent for it. Um, but you're trying not to nearly overstep it, as it were, because you're trying to find your feet with a new organization before they can really see why you should be there. It's always something that I kind of found interesting, kind of striking that balance. Yeah. So my view, like at the Knicks, was that I'm not going to come in here and be like a bulldog. Right. The whole view was the first year, just look, listen, and learn. So you basically what I became was a sponge. 
I was talking to everyone. I would talk to the video guys. Tell me what you do. What do you do here? You know, show interest. It's quite interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who used to work under me at Chelsea about the new manager. And I was asking him what he was like. And he said, you know, Dave, he said he shows interest in things that are completely irrelevant to football at Chelsea Football Club. And I found that fascinating because I was like, you know, most managers haven't got the time. What he told me was he was studying for an exam and he was in the training facility late at night and he literally was just walking past. He said, what are you doing? And he came and sat down with him and he was interested in what he was doing. And I, I do that a lot. I do that a lot with when I work with athletes, when I work with bands and when I work with, you know, whoever. What is it that you want? What's your goals? Where do you want to go? Tell me about this. Show me how you do this. And the more that you can sponge that information in, then you can start looking at the politics. Because obviously, if you're going in as a performance director, you have to deal with the owner. So you get an understanding about how does that owner work. When that owner comes in, everyone stands up tall and jumps. Why is that? Well, that's the culture that we've got within this organization. So learn that culture. Learn how you can affect that culture. And every organization and business is different. And the more that you can build out those relationships and then take that information in, my view is the more successful you're going to be. And I know know stories about people who've come over to America who've literally gone in and gone, like I heard a story about a hockey team where, you know, they were eating pizza after a game and they're having a couple of bits. And the guy came in and went, well, we're stopping all that. That's your professional athletes. And the guy lasted four months Mm. because the player's like, who are you? We've been doing this for the whole of our career, you know, and let's be honest, is one slice of pizza and a cup of beer is really going to affect our performance. So the ability to listen, the ability to take on board what is going on, and, you know, it's like anything in life, it's about building those relationships and then not letting people down. And I think where a lot of people fail is that they all start off with the best intentions, and for the first six months, they're great. But then levels or, you know, the, the, the level of their performances start to drop. They get comfortable. And that's the differentiator for me of someone who is successful at the highest, highest level for a period of time. Like we were talking off air about like you 2 right? I, working with them guys have been incredible experiences for me personally. But when you look about why they're so successful for 30-odd years, if you see how much they rehearse and their attention to detail after 30 years, that's why they are where they are. Same for McCartney. You go in and the guy's playing guitar, he's 70, 70 years old, he's like, why does he need to play guitar? How many times does he play that song? But they do. So in terms of all of that experience, you mentioned rock stars, movie stars, professional athletes at the very top. It's something that we try and unearth and discover and ravel on the podcast is what makes high-performing individuals tick. Just thinking back, like we spoke about you working with Daniel Craig on his last two James Bond films, working with Dave Grohl from the Foo Fires, the commonalities. What is it about them that you could pinpoint that makes them so successful? Work ethic. Working with these people, that work ethic. When you've seen that and you thought it was almost surprising to you, you mentioned you two there. What about Kevin Durant and madonna or the foo fighters could you see the same thing with them they're all obviously very different and they all have their way that they operate and the team around them but 
when you see the, the actual attention to detail and how much effort they put into what they do, so like, you know, KD rehabbing his Achilles from day dot, it was like no problem doing an hour and a half treatment, an hour and a half rehab in the morning, an hour and a half treatment, an hour and a half rehab in the afternoon, and then a pool session at nine or 10 o'clock at night. And you think, well, you know, this guy's going to be out for, let's say, nine months. And he's going to do that from the get-go every day. Most people will be like, ah, you know, let's just have a little bit of downtime. You know, I've had a tough year. Let me let me go out and have a little bit of party. You know, let me just, no. And then, you know, watching, watching tape, watching games, watching film is like a connoisseur of the game. And that's what makes him who he is. And sure, he's got skill. And sure, he's got height. But the ability to, when you look at what he actually does to where he is, I mean, it's like, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I just, I, when I used, I see it, I was like, okay, I really get why you are who you are. And on top of that, he's a great guy. And that's him. And then you take someone else like Bono. I've seen Bono in a gym boxing. And he's got two PAs on either side of him and he's talking to one PA about Red and his charities and he's talking to the other PA about the gig at the same time as he's boxing. So his brain's constantly moving from one thing to another to another and he's, he's doing three tasks at the same time. You know, the Edge sitting in a, in a studio and watching him like just play a riff time after time after time after time after time on a song that he's probably played hundreds of thousands of times but he would just be specific with something to get the actual detail there. Same with, with directors. You watch, you go into the movie world and you'll see a director and you'll watch one take and then they do another take and then you might say that they do 10 takes or 12 takes and you're behind, you're watching what they're doing in the tent and then you're seeing, okay, well, that was the same, that take to that take. Can't see any difference to me. But clearly they did and that's what makes them great. And Dave, what's intriguing about all this this whole bottle of knowledge that you've acquired from so much travel, from so many late shifts, so much accountability, preparation, work ethic, all those resonate with you. We can see them coming through with all that work. You're, you've created a platform, a software platform where you're trying to nearly encapsulate that and make it more readily available for people on the phone when you're bringing together experience from medics, coaches, athletes to shed light on aspects that these performance maybe know back to front, like sleep and, and diet and mental health. would love to unpack a little bit as to what Apollo is all about. So the problem with people working in sport is they don't have much time. And the time that they do have, they want to be, if you're a coach, coaching. If you're a physio, treating, rehabbing. If you're a sports scientist, working them out in the gym. All these people that work within sports environments, and then you've got all the moving parts. So like in the NBA, you know, you'd have to be up at nine o'clock for shoot around. You get back, you have lunch, you get on the first bus at three o'clock, you then get straight to the arena, you're on it. The game doesn't finish till 11 or 11.30 at night. You're back on the plane, you're flying into a new city, you get in at 3 a.m., then you have to go again. Major League Baseball every day, 14, 15 hours a day. And I take my hat off to these people that do what they do, which I've done in the past. So I actually really understand what it's like to work at the coalface. And what we've done with this system that we've built, and I've had assistance with people like Tony Strudwick, Peter Vint, George Pine, who's the ex-CEO of IMG. I've, I've taken their experiences of different areas of sport, 
and I've created a system that can be bespoke for any client or any team or any level around the world. Because each of these sporting teams want to do something slightly different. The way I physio, Dave, is different to the way you physio. So therefore, the software solution should be able to fit to your methodology and fit to my methodology. So we've taken about three years, spent probably over $4 million so far, and we've built a system like an ecosystem, if you like, to be able to customize anything that you want to do with collecting your information. And we've made it really easy and simple to save us time. So the key with software is, number one, is it customizable for my needs? Number two, how can I get data into a database? And number three, can I create something or does the system do something for me to make sense of it? And number four, can I deliver everything to my phone because I'm always on the move? That's exactly what we've done. So I'll give you an example. If I'm a physio at a football club, I can press a button on my phone and I can dictate my notes directly into our app, which goes directly into the player's medical file, and I don't need to type. If you think how much time that would save every physio every day, and the same for a coach, and the same for a strength coach, the same for a sports scientist. And then if I'm out rehabbing someone, I want to video them doing that drill, video it, bang, go straight into the medical file, it's done. And then if I want to create a report to look at a longitudinal multivariance on some data that I've collected, and I want to visualize it and then pull it up on my phone because I'm having a meeting with a doctor or a sports scientist, you can do it. It's such a comprehensive platform. And to put something together like that is a huge undertaking, as you mentioned, even the resources you need financially, the time it takes. But looking at the team that you've assembled, I mean, Dr. Tony Strudwick, Bill Burgess, Michael Macri, these guys, how important is it to have the right people on board when you're starting something like this? Anything that anyone does, you have to have the right people. You have to have a variety of different expertise. You have to have the one common goal so that everyone's pulling in the right direction. My view is leave your egos at the door. You have to have fun because without fun, things can get really bogged down. And if everyone has ownership of what you're doing, then you'll move in the right direction. It's such a story there, and success leaves clues, right? What we'd be curious about, say if we're rolling forward 10 to 15 years from now, all that you've done, Leeds, Blackburn, the New York Knicks, building out this app, all the people you've connected with in the entertainment business, the rock business, Hollywood, in 10 to 15 years now, looking back, you're on your porch, you're having a nice drink. What would you like to be remembered for when you're thinking back to all those moments in time? Helping people. You've done that across so many different environments. It's not easy to do. And it needs strong leadership. And you've worked with some of the best, like Phil Jackson, Fabio Capello, Jose Mourinho, as you mentioned earlier. What is the commonality of being a good leader? And you're doing it now with being the CEO of Apollo. What are the characteristics of good leadership? I think there's different ways to lead. You know, you look at those people you mentioned, they're all very, very different in the way that they lead. Some are dictatorship. Some are very much, you know, lead from the back. I think it's very much, a lot of it's down to your style of your personality. I think it's from your experiences that you've, that you've had dealing with situations. I mean, like, you know, just being able to learn from all those different people. Um, 
I remember having breakfast with Phil and we were talking about Dennis Rodman. And this is way obviously before The Last Dance came out. And he said to me that the problem with managing Dennis Rodman was that everyone who previously managed him tried to put him in a cage. And he said that's the worst possible thing you could do for that type of character and personality is really you just needed to let him fly and just now and again pull him in. But if you let him fly, he'll go to war for you. And he says without Dennis, from a defensive point of view, the Bulls dynasty wouldn't have been what it was. So each dealing with each character or each personality, you have to adapt to those needs. And I think it's the same when you treat people. I think it's the same when you're dealing with teams like we are now. You know, like we just signed another NBA team, just signing an NFL team. What they want is different to what another NBA client of ours has got or another NFL client of ours has got. So that adaptability in anything that you do, I think, is, is key. And with the world, Dave, that you're in every day and around it, in around performance, in around development, software, programs, systems, innovation must be a word that's thrown around quite a lot. And we've come into a bit of contact with ourselves recently because we've had to, with, uh, with COVID, we've had to pivot massively in, in terms of certain service provisions and that sort of thing. Where do you see the next big innovation moving forward over the next three to four years? It might well be what you're doing. Well, I can't tell you everything, Dave, that I'm doing because I told my competitors to know. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to write it down here and rub it from you, Mr. Hancock. We've got it. We're going to build it in Dublin better. (laughs) In sport tech, uh, I think what's happening is that there's been a massive explosion in you know, data collection, we need to monitor this, we need to do this, we need to do that. And all of a sudden, like, people at team level is just absolutely swamped. And then you've got the other side where everyone's trying to look at AI and, you know, neural networks and, and um, data scientists. And we, we do that for teams. And we, we, we're very bespoke on what we do for each team. And it's all around what is it you're trying to achieve. But what I see teams doing is they haven't got their houses right. They're working on multiple different software systems. They're using multiple, multiple different platforms to collect hardware, to collect data, but it's not being shared on one collective system. So when you start doing AI and you start looking at predictability in neural networks and Monte Carlo simulations and all the great things that data scientists can do with data, you're only looking at, you know, maybe... 60% of your your cake. So the 40% of the data is not there, but should be there that might influence the other 60%. So therefore, from the injury, from the sort of AI predictability modeling, I think people are trying to run before they can walk. And I think that people need to improve their communication across the entire operation. And I think they need to centralize all their data. And that's really what we do. Because if you can centralize it through API, so that's where data can automatically come from, you know, whether it's Statsports or Polar, whether it's looking at RAM and non-RAM from, you know, your Apple Watch or um, other sensors that you would use to collect sleep, whether it's nutritional, dietary, but also on top of that is the coach. Because the coach's subjective opinion is actually quite valuable with all the objective data that you're collecting. And I think if you can centralize all that, improve your communication about what 
each member of the team is doing or departments are doing, you'll see success over time. And then your AI modeling and your data scientists can really go to town on what you're doing. So like I see Manchester City have recently signed, you know, a rocket scientist. And it's fascinating what they're obviously trying to do for future with regard looking at, you know, in these scenarios where what should I do in a game, right? So whether you want to call that opportunities, did I make the right opportunity? Should I push the ball out wide? Should I have made the cross? Should I have shot to goal? Should I have moved forward? You know, various different options that you can have. And obviously through physics and, and mathematical models, you can calculate that and the accuracy of that. Quite fascinating stuff. And it sounds like City are, are, are really investing heavily in it. But go back to the, the first part is if you haven't got all of your information, then you can't necessarily look at how we're going to improve performance and how we're going to reduce injury. Because if you can do those two things using data and technology, including subjective view of the coach, then you're moving in the right direction. And I just don't think people are doing it yet. I think they are moving towards it. And as a company, we're signing a lot of clients over the last year because I think what they see is that our platform, compared to other competitive platforms, does so much more and is so much more adaptable. And that's where I think that this is, is going. But at the minute, I think there's too much. I just think people collect data for the sake of collecting it and they're not really making a change. I think it makes them look, you know, when they get up in front of a, sort of their peers or academic conferences and they put up the slides and say, yeah, we do this and we do that and we do this. And everyone's like, wow. That, you know, at so-and-so club, they're doing this and they're doing that. And, oh, he's really good. But the reality is, are you winning and are you reducing your injuries? And when you actually look at that, where these people are, that's not actually, and, and that's the bottom line. And I think the future is definitely along AI modeling. I think it's definitely along data science. But I think there's a lot of steps that people need to do in order to actually make sense and get there. And I think they need to go back a little bit, take a few steps back and go back to basics. Like, like I said, you know, I remember when I was at the Knicks, I was looking at like 120 data points a day, you know, because I was trying to learn what this sport entailed. And in the end, I think I narrowed it down to about 10. And I was like, this is crazy. Let's just stick to these 10. I think that these are relevant. Let's track them. Let's look at them longitudinally. Let's see if there's something in these 10 data points that is affecting what the coaches are doing on a daily basis and what the players are doing on a daily basis. So I think it's sort of moved too far forward and people are getting swamped with it all. That's brilliant. You've given us so much knowledge already in the episode. Adaptability, look, listen, learn. Where do people go if they're intrigued and they want to find out more about Apollo, about yourself and about all the stuff that you're doing at the moment? I'm not a big social media guy. <laughs> He says doing a podcast. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn. The company has Instagram and the rest of it, Apollo V2. But I, our website is ApolloV2.com. And you can get me through those channels. But I'm not, I'm very much, I don't put it out there really, everything that we're doing on a daily basis. I'm a bit old school, unfortunately. I'm getting old. I'm getting old, guys. It's working for you, mate. <laughs> I don't know about the gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> Punching the bag with the two PAs beside you, Dave. So um, <laughs> there you go. That's the man. That's a, that's a story. Look, fascinating deep dive into 
what it really takes to make it to the top and to keep doing it at different levels, different places, which is really fascinating. Anyone who comes on the show, we always finish with a very simple question. And I think you very much are the epitome of it. And you've nearly answered it in so many different ways already. Dave Hancock, quite simply, what does high performance mean to you? Team, people, common goal, winning, improving, and being happy and have a laugh along the way. Dave Hancock, we'd like to say thank you very much for your time. Really grateful giving us the opportunity to tap into all of what has made you so successful. Learned an awful lot. So yeah, thanks again for your time and really looking forward to seeing what's on the horizon with Apollo. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. And uh, slanted to you both. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. Thanks, Dave. See you guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.